to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ash. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you too to Chanel for praying for all of us. So welcome again and uh, thank you for being here, thank you for those who've joined us online and uh, we're continuing in uh, Matthew of course and uh, it's always important to pay attention to what has gone before and to consider uh, what we've said. So uh, what we're looking at tonight is really a continuation of um, what Jesus said in the passage we read last week. So um, let's just have a brief recap on that and last week I spoke about doubt and if you remember uh, in particular we looked at the doubts of John the Baptist. He had these expectations of who Jesus was going to be and what Jesus was going to do and then suddenly he's imprisoned and his call doesn't seem to be going the way that he thought that it would and um, then he's hearing all these alarming things and um, he's not sure whether Jesus really is the promised one or not because what's happening isn't adding up to what he thought would actually happen and so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him directly whether he is the promised one or whether they should be looking for someone else. And Jesus, rather than giving a nice concise answer um, to John's disciples to send back to him, simply says to the disciples, examine the evidence, tell John what you're seeing. And he reminds John that there are all these scriptures that are to be fulfilled in the promised Messiah. And it reminds John that those scriptures are being fulfilled in the ministry that Jesus is conducting. And it reveals to John that, yes, he is the Messiah because these things are being fulfilled. Then after John's disciples leave, Jesus commends John, his faithfulness, his steadfastness, his willingness to serve. And I just wanted to encourage you last week that, you know, when we have those doubts, it's okay. It's, it's what we do with those doubts that really matters. And so when we take those to Jesus and we lay them at his feet and we see him and we seek him, uh, he will bless us in the midst of that. And then tonight is a continuation of that conversation that Jesus is having with the crowds. So let's pray and then get into it. Father God, I want to thank you again that we can be in this place tonight without any fear of persecution, without any fear that anything is going to happen to us. I thank you, Lord, that we hold at least one copy of your word in our hands and in our households, Lord. Many of us have way above that. And Lord, I thank you that we can hear your name, your word proclaimed. 
I ask for open hearts and open minds to hear the truth of your word this evening, Lord, that we'll engage with it and that you'll challenge each one of us individually in wherever we are in our walk with you right now. And that, Lord, it will be transformational for us, that we will want to change our lives to draw closer to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said last week, Jesus has emphasized that uh, John the Baptist is the prophet who was prophesied about. He's the one who the prophet said would come preparing the way of the promised Messiah. And it seems that Jesus not only affirmed John's position and commended him for what he was doing, but in a not so subtle way, he proclaimed within that whole um, account last week that he is the promised Messiah. And last week's passage of scripture finished with that Little phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. God sent his messenger before Jesus. But many people refused to accept that messenger. Jesus came proclaiming the truth, the gospel truth. But the majority have refused to accept that. God's revelation through Jesus is powerless if people do not respond. And tonight... That is what Jesus is looking at. That's what he's expounding on, on what we've already read. And in reality, first and foremost, is Jesus' rebuke. Jesus begins his rebuke with a question as to what he can compare this generation to. And the expression, this generation, is one that is repeated all throughout Matthew. And it speaks in general terms about the vast majority of people. Hear that clearly, the vast majority of people. There are some who've come to faith, but this is speaking about the vast majority of the generation that Jesus is actually addressing. And so we heard read out... But to what shall I compare this generation is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And of course it goes without saying that Jesus has this incredible ability to take biblical teaching and to apply it to something that those he's teaching readily understand and readily know. And Jesus has been in the marketplaces and he's observed many things and he's observed the children playing in the marketplace and it is that that he picks up and uses to have this illustration if you like um, and he'll actually have an application soon too but he gives this illustration of a real life situation that these people can relate to and understand. So he's talking about these children in the marketplace. And you've possibly experienced this yourself. You've possibly heard it. You've possibly been on the receiving end of some of this when you've been a kid yourself. But there's one group of kids and, and they want to play. And so they say to the other group, let's do something joyful. Let's play weddings. And they begin to play the flute so they can be happy and be joyful and everything like that. And the others say, you know what? We don't want to be happy today. And so the other kids say, that's okay, that's okay, let's play funerals, let's be sad together, let's play a dirge. And the other guys go, we don't want to be sad together, we don't want to do that. And it didn't matter what the first group suggested or what they were willing to do, the second group just didn't want to do it. No matter what was offered, they decided um, to find fault with it. And Jesus has given this illustration and now he gives this application. He's still speaking to the crowds which included the religious leaders. And now he says, you are just like those kids. Because John came, neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. 
It's interesting to note when we see things like John came or Jesus came or the Son of Man came, when, it, when that word came is there, it's not, it's not speaking about arriving, it's not speaking about um, coming to a place. But when it speaks about it in Scripture, in the New Testament, it's speaking about their entire ministry. So when John came, in John's ministry, that's the way you should be thinking. When the Son of Man came, in his ministry, um, think of that as you, as you move through this and you see this word. And uh, so it's the same in verse 19 when it speaks about when the Son of Man came, when Jesus came. So in John's ministry, he was not known for eating and drinking. Now, of course, we know that he ate and drank. He had to do so to survive, but that was it for John. He wasn't, he wasn't one of these people who had to go and have great feasts or anything like that. He wasn't one of these people who enjoyed fine food and things like that. Uh, these things weren't things that he placed much value or importance on. He had to fulfill God's call. That was his focus. That's what he wanted to do. And so when he ate, he ate simply to survive. And we know that we're told that... Uh, well, I think we can say with much certainty that John actually didn't attend um, too many parties or was present at too many large celebrations or meals or anything like that. We know in Matthew 3, 4 that it says this about John, that he wore a garment of camel's hair, he had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. I don't think it would have been very specific about his locusts and wild honey if he was to enjoy a large range of foods. This was his primary food. This was mostly what he ate. And uh, I'm not sure about you guys, but if I'd gone out and seen a guy in the desert who was wearing camel's hair, he wouldn't get invited to too many of my parties. It's just a little bit unusual. And that's just it. This John guy, he was different. He wasn't like everyone else. He stood out and he stood out because he believed in God and added to that belief in God was the belief in the call that God had on his life. And he didn't care who challenged him, what they tried to get him to do, how they tried him to suppress what he was believed he should be telling others. He remained true to his convictions. And you remember last week, you know, who did you go out in the desert to see? Was it a reed swayed by the wind? No. John was commended for how solid he was in his faith in God and in Jesus. He placed God's mission and call above his own comfort in life, above the desire to possess things. He wanted to live in obedience to God and please him rather than doing things that would please men. What a guy. How incredible is his faith? And yet I wonder if I was living in those times, if I would be with the crowd that Jesus mentions here and basically just looked at John and went, you know what? He's a weird fella. I'm not too sure about him. He doesn't eat like normal people eat. He ate like that grasshopper. Did you see that? I, I don't think I could do that. That's, that's just not normal. And you know, when he talks, everything he talks about is God this and God that, and you should do this and you should do that. I don't know. It just isn't normal, eh? And the thing is, they didn't care to understand. They just labelled him and decided that there was no way that God would be using someone like that. They discounted him. They thought he was a nutter. They thought he was crazy and said, you know what? 
Surely he's possessed. That's the only way a normal person would react and respond the way he is. And then John, Jesus says, well, okay, maybe, maybe John made you a little bit uncomfortable because of how he didn't eat and how he didn't drink. And he said, well, you know what? If that was your reason for not liking John, then what about me? And Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is saying that his ministry is marked by many gatherings around meal tables. There are times he was at celebrations where they ate and drank. Food and drink were not at the center of Jesus' life, but his habits would have been what most people at the time would have considered normal as far as what he ate and drank and the people he interacted with going to parties and celebrations and things like that. But just like those little kids wasn't actually what John said it wasn't actually what Jesus said really it was that they simply weren't interested in responding to them they didn't want anything to do with the message that they had and so the same people who accused John of being possessed because his day-to-day habits were so counter to theirs and not satisfied with Jesus because of his habits and his habits of eating and drinking were normal and surely a holy man shouldn't be like that They call him a glutton, someone who eats to excess, a drunkard, someone who drinks to excess. And as we all know, someone who is in the bad habit of eating to excess and drinking to excess, well, what are their friends like? Of course, they hang with the bad crowd, don't they? We all know that. We've all said that. And who does Jesus hang with? Tax collectors. Can you believe it? This holy man is hanging with these guys who've betrayed our very nation. They're extortionists, they're social outcasts, they're unclean, they're defiled Jews. And Jesus, who is supposedly a holy man, hangs with these people. And it's not just the tax collectors he hangs with. I mean, they're bad, they're really mega bad. But he also hangs with sinners. And these are the guys who don't do what the religious leaders say they should do. They don't stick to the ceremonial laws. They're breaking them. You know that saying, don't you? You can tell a person by the company they keep. And that's exactly what these people are thinking. Jesus is hanging with tax collectors and sinners. John is rejected because he didn't eat and drink like normal people. And Jesus is rejected because he ate and drank like normal people. And then we've got that little line at the end, haven't we? Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What is that about? What is the wisdom that Jesus is speaking of here? It's not a wisdom that one is to have and hold in order to have greater knowledge and be able to debate well. Uh, This is a wisdom that was always intended to be lived out. It's a wisdom that is ultimately transformational in people's lives, the lives of those who believe. It is a wisdom that earmarks all true followers of Jesus. How do we tell? these people how can we see that they're different to others it's by the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control 
By their fruits you will know them. And the wisdom being spoken of does not need anyone to commend it, for it is proven right or it is proven justified in the acts or works of the followers of Jesus. This wisdom is vindicated or justified by how it is outworked in the lives who've accepted the message of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is good news, but it is good news only to those who receive it. The gospel message is terrible news to those who reject it. We love to say that those who accept the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection and ascension, are going to go out and have a great time in glory with him. We're very reluctant to say those who reject that message are going to suffer eternal damnation. They are going to be separated from God forever. We don't like saying that bit, but that's part of the gospel message. And this is where Jesus is at as he continues this dialogue. He has this heartbreaking condemnation that he predicts. And Jesus moves to denounce the towns where he's performed many of the greatest miracles. And yet they rejected him, meaning they did not receive his message. And as crazy as it sounds, Jesus says that those cities, known for having committed incredible evil, will be better off than the cities that failed to respond to the message of Jesus. Jesus wasn't looking for people to be amazed by the works that he did. He wasn't looking for people to be overawed by who he was. He wanted people to repent. He wanted people to come into the kingdom. And so as we heard read, Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Woe to you. What do you think about when you hear that term? It's like a term of judgment, isn't it? It's like a term of condemnation. It seems to be this harsh thing that Jesus is saying. But that's not what this means. It's not. I've always taken it to mean that. And sometimes I've, always, I've taken it to mean, look out, beware. But that's not what it means either. Uh, it's a statement of regret. And it's a statement of regret made by Jesus. The good news, uh, Bible translates this, how terrible it will be for you. That's how they translate this section. And we have to believe Jesus is not happy with the fate of those who do not accept him, of the fate of those who do not believe. But in the midst of this is also a recognition that they will have brought their eternal result upon themselves. His statement is here is one that is mixed with a warning for them, but it also shows Jesus' compassion. Chorazin is only mentioned here in the parallel passage in Luke. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture which is quite interesting. But apparently it was a very influential town. And it's generally believed that it, it was this town that was about two miles outside of Capernaum. And it was a town of some significance. And we've had some indication here too of the truth of Jesus and his work and ministry. Look at John 21, 25 here. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. If they were all written down one by one, I suppose that the whole world could not hold the books that would be written. And John's saying here in this verse that it's impossible to write down everything that Jesus did. 
And in the account that we've read, that's just been indicated. I'm not sure if you've picked up on that. We have this tendency to read over things. We don't understand what is right before our very eyes. But back in what we've looked at tonight, what's it say about his miracles? It was in these towns that Jesus performed most of his miracles. How many are listed in Scripture in these towns? Not very many. And when we look at Scripture as a whole, there's all these incredible things that Jesus did. And he's just so amazing. And we're amazed at what's there. But these, these aren't recorded. We don't have these in Scripture. And that's where it comes back to that John passage where it was like, if we put down everything that Jesus did, even in these towns, the books would not be able to contain it. This is where he performed most of his miracles. They were clearly the greatest that he did. And this not only shows how finite our accounts here are, but it also shows how incredible Jesus is and how little we know about him, how powerful and mighty he was. The accounts we have in our hands and consider incredible do not even begin to reveal the wonders of Jesus and who he is just in his time here on earth, let alone his time in glory and now that he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And even though these people rejected Jesus, even though they rejected his message, he still longs for them. It says, woe to you, Karazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. It's this lament of one who offered men and women the most precious gift they could possibly ever receive. And yet they rejected that gift. Bethsaida. This is the hometown of Philip, Andrew and Peter. And it would seem they were the only ones who repented and turned to Jesus. There's no other record of anyone coming. And Jesus had performed many works of power, proving the very presence of God amongst these people. And he did this with the intention of it just awakening something in them to reflect on who God is. And to consider their position before God. And to take steps to draw closer to God. To repent of the evil they had done. To be accepted by him. And the enormity of their sin in rejecting Jesus is clearly reflected in the towns that Jesus compares them to. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon were two pagan coastal cities in the Old Testament. They were very wealthy cities and ultimately they were overthrown and destroyed because of their lack of repentance. They were denounced because of their pride, their cruelty, their corruption. But Jesus, he says that Tyre and Sidon would have repented in sackcloth and ashes if the mighty works that he did in Chorazon and Bethsaida were done in them. Those living in Chorazon and Bethsaida, believed they were living righteously and following God. But if they were, they would have recognized the very presence of God embodied in Jesus in their very midst. But they didn't. They chose to reject him. And so their eternal outcome will be much worse for them than for Tyre and Sidon. And then Jesus moves on. And he speaks about Capernaum 
And he asks Capernaum a question, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Capernaum is a town that Jesus visited frequently during his ministry. And in fact, it is referred to as Jesus' hometown or his own city. And it says that in Matthew 9.1 and various other places in Scripture in the New Testament. And Jesus doesn't pronounce that woe on Capernaum, but he simply asks this question, a rhetorical question it is, will you be exalted to heaven? They were proud too. They exalted themselves, thinking they could look to heaven as their ultimate destination. But Jesus says, no, you will not be exalted to heaven. You'll be brought down to Hades. And he compares them to Sodom, who were remembered as the den of iniquity. So great was their sexual immorality. But again, Jesus says, if the miracles that were performed in Capernaum had have been performed in Sodom, then the city would never have been destroyed. Meaning that they would have turned to God. They would have acknowledged him. They would have repented. So what is it that Chorazan, Bethsaida and Capernaum have done? They saw themselves as righteous. And they failed to recognize the presence of God in their midst. They refused to accept Jesus' message of salvation. They refused to repent when all of the evidence was clearly before them. What does that mean for us? I want you to think about why these cities were judged and found wanting by Jesus. They had him present with them and they failed to respond to him or his message the the cities were considered wicked and evil in all of the accounts that we read of them and these these cities that were considered wicked and evil they'll experience a more tolerable outcome on the day of judgment than the cities we've read about tonight I want to talk tonight first and foremost about those of you who've heard the gospel message again and again and have yet to make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't know the time or the day that your life will end. And borrowing a line from Frank Jenner, who constantly asked this question in Sydney, if you were to die tonight, are you going to heaven? It's a question we must answer question we should answer before we face the one true God and for so many we've heard the gospel message again and again and yet we will not make that commitment to Jesus we do not know you do not know the time or the day that your life will end I pray that God will not allow you to rest that he'll keep you restless until you make a choice. And my prayer is that you do not delay. Your life is in his hands. And we consider this passage tonight, many of you have heard and continue to reject him and his message. And if you continue to do that, your outcome is going to be much worse than those who have never heard. And it is on you 
you need to make a choice. These cities were privileged to have Jesus with them and for him to perform most of his miracles in their presence. That's why they're held to higher account. And I want you to think about the privilege of living in Australia right here, right now, in this time. I want you to think about the number of Bibles that you have in your household. I must have at least a dozen myself. And there's people and places in the world where they cherish a page of Scripture for a very brief moment, so much so they memorize it. God forgive me how much I've taken this word for granted. It is so freely available to us. We gather here each Sunday when we feel like it to celebrate our relationship with our wonderful Saviour and to join together in unity. We can gather whenever we want to pray, to read God's word. And I can't help but thinking about this passage of Scripture. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I think we fool ourselves into thinking we're okay. I think as I work through this passage of Scripture, God told me I'm not. God told me we're not. And so tonight, I've been called to give an account of myself. And I believe God's doing the same for each one of us. I want you to think about the fact that we don't hold our children as accountable as we hold adults. We don't expect the same conduct from our kids as we expect of mature people. We don't expect people who have lived lives where they've been deprived of many things to live comfortably middle-class lives like I do. And I believe clearly, based on this verse, based on what we've read in Matthew tonight, the greater our privileges have been, the greater our condemnation. If we fail to shoulder the God-given responsibilities and obligations that we have as believers... So many of us prefer to live lives of indifference... Think about these cities. They didn't attack Jesus. They didn't do anything that physically harmed him. They didn't do anything against his name. They simply disregarded him and his message. Think of the church of Laodicea, who was much the same. They were neither hot nor cold. And so many of us are like that. We're living this life of indifference. What is the call 
upon our lives. When we give our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he tell us to do? If we are true followers of Jesus, then you are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And tells us it will be with us until the end of the age. And are we doing that? Do we even care that people are going to hell? Or are we indifferent? Proving that we have a lack of interest in the things of God. There is no second plan. We're it. The greatest sin we commit today is the sin of doing nothing. And we justify it. We make excuses. Corazon, Bethsaida, Capernaum, guilty of doing nothing. Don't be like them. God calls for a response. Father, not an easy message, but it's your message. I just ask your work. 